0: morning. You are listening to People Powered Radio, 2XXFM. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. My name's Tom, and I'm delighted to have two guests with me. And today we are going to talk about nutrition. I'd like to introduce Dr. Nenad Naumkovsky from the University of Canberra. Hello, Nenad. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having us. Thank you for coming, and also his PhD student. Mr. Nathan De Hi, Nathan. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, we've been having a bit of a chat in the cafe downstairs. We've been getting into a bit of nutrition ourselves with the cappuccinos and lattes and breakfast, but you two are actually nutritionists. You understand the science of nutrition.
1: Well, yeah, we are trying to. (laughs) We're trying to do our best to understand the science of nutrition because it's a really, really complex area and I don't think that everybody um, has or anybody has actually understood it completely. Um, so it's it's a very a new, relatively new area of sciences that is appearing, um, and obviously because uh, food is um, everything that everybody else needs, um, there is a lot of um, a knowledge that is out there, um, and everybody has got a little bit of a knowledge about a food, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes that little bit of knowledge can actually be dangerous, uh, but it can also be a beneficial from the other angle as well. Okay. How did you get into nutrition, uh, Nina? Oh, uh, it's... Uh, if you have got another three hours, I'd be quite happy <laughs> to tell you about it. Uh, but basically what happened was is um, I arrived in Australia back in the '92 as a refugee from um, a war-torn country of uh, former Yugoslavia. And um, one of the main... Um, Ways of getting into the country is, was, uh, as a refugee, you always think about the food. You're always continuously hungry. So I made decisions that I'm going to work in a restaurant as a kitchen hand and from kitchen hand became a chef and from chef, um, ran my own restaurants back in the Newcastle. And then from that point on, I realized that there is a more to it than just, um, cooking the food and serving it out to the people and mm-hmm. uh, went to university to keep my dear wife uh, a company um, just to, you know, seeing what is out there at university and what is uh, in that world and then started growing interest in the food science and human nutrition and took it from there.
0: Fantastic story yeah, so you've had the hands-on experience and you've got the academic background now background. as well yes, to give you quite a good insight and what about you Nathan?
2: Um, so like uh, many young Australian, Australian males, <laughs> uh, I came out of <laughs> high school, a little bit scrawny, and uh, actually (laughs) took up American football, so... Wow. Yeah, so I had to put on some muscle pretty quickly, so I got interested in nutrition that way, and I I ended up playing in the United States and getting up to about 145 kilos uh, while I was playing. 145? Yeah, so... But you're so skinny now. Yeah, so it wasn't all muscle. (laughs) 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 Um... And so, basically, once I stopped playing, uh, I started to really focus on my diet and and realize the power that nutrition can bring as far Mm -hmm. as giving you more energy and more focus and just making you feel and look healthier as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, fantastic story. So, you're both nutritionists, and why do we need the study of nutrition? Why can't I just go and buy my KFC bucket and be happy?
1: Oh, you can still do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sometimes uh, the study of nutrition is neat because it, it literally just drives pretty much everything that we do on every day on a day-to-day basis, but it also it has a consequences not only for um, from our development perspective but also from the things that we are going to do in the near and a far future. And on top of that, it can actually cause a consequences to... Um, the generations that are coming uh, away from us. So our children, our grandchildren, mm-hmm. our great-grandchildren are going to have an influence. Um, and it's really important that we have got the adequate nutrition in order to maintain the healthy, not only the healthy lifestyle, because nowadays everybody has got a lifestyle rather than having a life, um, but <laughs> to, to have the, the, the healthy and, and, and more sensible approach to that concept of aging, mm-hmm. um, that that we can... Perform and do the things for a longer period of times and the more beneficial things with more energy and with more quality of enjoyment of doing what we are doing. Um, so th- 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 that, that is only a one angle, only a one area of why we do need a nutrition. But we also need a nutrition to actually plan the population growth, uh, mm-hmm. to to implement the changes of the ch- in, in changes that we are seeing in the population growth and different demographics, um, to be able to maintain that health to maintain that activity to maintain that um strive for a better quality of life
0: so it's quite a far-ranging field from what you're saying it's
1: absolutely absolutely it's a far far ranging field than just um you know being concentrated on a bucket of kfc mm-hmm. or a bucket of makers or whatever we're mm. going
0: for. not that we're endorsing any brand here of course no but no no, just no it's random a example. It's, it's this
1: random example
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so it's obviously got a lot of impact and is, is is nutrition does it relate to more than just what you eat is there more than that in nutrition or...? Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. You know, it's, there's a, it's not only the
1: what you eat, it's how you eat, who are you eating it with, when you're eating it, um, or where do you source the food items. I mean, when you think about a simple concept of... Um, let's, let's take an example of, of uh, having an egg. When where does that egg? All right, you know egg comes from chickens, but where was that uh, chicken? Was that chicken out on in a cage uh, setting, or was that chicken uh, roaming the fields and mm-hmm. um, chipping on doing whatever the chickens do out there in the field and laying an egg? Um, but then it brings it back off. When you're cooking that egg, uh, who are you eating it with? How are you eating it? Um, uh, is it to be the social event? Is it? Um, are you on your own? Um, how are you going to prepare it? What is the composition of the egg, etc., etc.? So it has got a lot of uh, layers in between of rather than just having the food so food has become um today's food that we have got is more sort of a medium of delivering and nourishment um but we also have to think about what other implications are associated with it
0: and how we can enjoy the food better that it is fantastic and that's made us so hungry we might take a short musical break at this stage i'm with dr nina Namovsky and uh Nathan de Ups as our special guests today and if you read New Scientist a few weeks ago there was a cover story it was quite an alarming cover story which was entitled why everything you know about nutrition is wrong so I wanted to ask my guests what they think about that headline is that really true is everything that we know about nutrition wrong
2: Uh, I don't think everything we know about nutrition is wrong, but certainly it's a a very complex uh, science, and I thought the article in New Scientist was uh, very well written. Um, It was pretty comprehensive and had quotes from some of the leading minds around uh, research study design and some of the methodological issues in nutrition research. Um, Some of the points that they highlighted was um, that we really don't have a lot of well conducted randomized controlled trials into nutrition Um, these are very difficult to conduct and they can be very expensive especially if you're uh, trying to provide participants in a research study with all of their food so that you can um, make sure there's no confounding variables such as sneaking off to mcdonald's when you're Mm -hmm. supposed to be eating a certain diet
0: nathan what does a randomized controlled trial actually mean
2: um so basically what it means is Uh, You have a sample size um, from a specific population. Maybe you want to study the effects of a certain dietary pattern in Mm -hmm. people that are obese or overweight. And you might recruit, say, 500 people, and you want to randomise them between groups. So whether it's the intervention or the control group, or maybe you have a couple of different interventions and a control as well. So you want to make sure that um, the participants are randomised across the groups relatively evenly. And then you give them a different intervention. So one would be the control condition. So maybe that would just be a standard diet or something that you'd find in the uh, dietary guidelines. And so may- and uh, would be the control group. And maybe in the intervention you have like a Mediterranean diet or a low-carb diet mm-hmm. or something like that. And so these are you know, probably one of the most uh, rigorous and robust uh, study designs that we have. Um, but doing them for nutrition can be can be quite difficult. And certainly telling someone to follow the same diet for a year uh, can be quite quite difficult. Um, there needs to be other things included like education, maybe having dietitians advise them and even the most rigorous studies, like I said, would actually give the food to the participants as well.
1: Mm. Uh, and, and with those type of studies, obviously it's really hard to push them into the general population setting because you're really trying to ask somebody to change their a diet to change their uh, food that they are eating, uh, to change the way of be- food behavior that they are actually having as well. So, I mean, you just uh, speaking from the personal perspective, can you imagine if you're allocated into the group um, that is actually a, a treatment group? So you're the person that has to change the the whole way of a consumption based on who somebody told you to to do it. So unless you're in a different setting, unless you're in a setting such as um, uh, institutionalized setting where you have got more of a control, mm. these type of diets actually are exceptionally hard to, to implement and to monitor the
0: outcomes. And we're relying on people often to fill out food diaries and things too, aren't we? And that has inherent problems, I guess. Oh,
1: absolutely. Accuracy I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, even filling out a food diaries is that there's always that perception that a food diaries might not be. If they are self-reported food diaries, mm. um, we do have a tendency to um, overestimate our healthy intake and underestimate our unhealthy intake because we all know what is a healthy and what is not healthy. You know? So
0: we leave out some of the fried chicken. We leave forward.
1: some, that's right. We <laughs> leave some of the fried chicken out and we always I mean, I remember when we were running. We we have been running some of the trials like that back in my um, one of the old universities where I used to work at University of Newcastle. Um, we would be doing those type of interviews, and every time that I would ask a participant "Do you have, um, do you have a, a, a you know, Snickers?" and they would say, "Oh yeah, I do. Um, I do eat Snickers." Okay, so what size Snickers would you have? And they would say, "Oh, I have got you know one of the smaller <laughs> Snickers bars." I said, "Which ones?" and and they will show literally a small sneaker bar that looks like a mini one. Uh, But then by the time you're actually asking them, it ends up being that they're having a, you know, a twin pack, double-sized sneakers bar, uh, and they're classified as a small one. So it's really that perception and the reporting of the accurate food representation of what they're having. Um, It's really hard to actually get that from the self-reported reports. From the interview styles, you can actually drag that information out. But then obviously performing that interview style, it takes a long time, Mm. It's very demanding, and it's burdensome for participants as well, as much as it is for researchers too.
0: I can imagine. So I guess in summary what we're saying is um, there are certain challenges that we face in nutrition research, but it's still worth doing?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It is, um, and, and I may be biased in saying here, yes, it's worth doing in nutrition research, but it's not only worth doing the nutrition research. It's worth doing in nutrition research that has got specific um targeted points that you're trying to apply so rather than doing a nutrition research just because we can, it's completely wrong um, we can't apply the shotgun approach to nutrition uh, so we can't literally just, you know, load a bullet um, into the shotgun, fire it up, and if you ever seen a pattern of uh, distribution of the pellets, it's literally just all around the place, and then try to cherry pick what we are looking for. No, no, mm. we really have to be targeted to what is that we are really looking for mm. from the nutrition perspective, because you will find associations with everything and anything. Um, but um, it has to be directed and has to have um, kind of a driving answer that
0: you're trying to seek Mm. or a driving question Mm -hmm. that you're trying to seek. Otherwise, it's just sort of data mining, I guess, is Absolutely, it's a data mining. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, one of the things that is
2: sort of coming into vogue with research and really needs to come into play with nutrition is pre-registering what you're looking for before you actually start the study. So, Uh, uploading into an online database exactly what questions you're trying to answer, what statistical tests you're going to run, and what outcomes you're looking for, so that um, if you don't find a positive result, or you don't find the association that you're looking for, um, that that this is reported, and there's like a a trail for this, Mm. so that people can see that you're not just going out there comparing all different uh, variables that you've collected, and looking for what happens to become significant, because uh, if you collect enough data, Mm. then yeah you're going to find a significant result by chance. So.
0: But Nathan, if you don't find a significant results, what are your chances of being published in some sort of journal?
2: Yeah, so that's actually a a big challenge uh, with all research, and particularly nutrition research. And a recent review of the U.S. clinical trials register uh, identified 67 trials that Mm -hmm. uh, did not report their results after an average of nine years after the study was completed. So basically all the participants in those studies, their contributions, it hasn't been added into the scientific literature. So other researchers then can't go forward and learn from those results. And so it's, it's really important that negative results are published as well. To give some balance.
1: Oh, I mean, you must have that. I mean, you yeah. it, it, to have the negative results is really what what the reasons why we are doing the research as well so it, negative results quite often we would have at university the students would come up and they would say they perform a small scale because we are training them how to do the research as well and perform training them how to uh, run the laboratory experiments and the students would complain said you know if for my laboratory reports i don't have any significant results i don't have any significant difference what should i write so write that because that is what is really important. So we don't re- have to reinvent a wheel. I mean, you know, so to run one clinical trial, it can cost anything from $5,000 to $50 million, mm. depending on what you're trying to do. But can you imagine how much more uh, readily information would be available if we can publish the negative results mm. that we're only observing? If there is uh, no association between a consumption of a product X with the outcome Y, Um, Why don't we actually allow the public to know that? Or why are we not pushing that over to the public as well to know? Because that is also important. And it will stop everything from the other consequences as well that are leading to the development of these uh, false statements that we are having in the public as well.
0: Um, I, I imagine there's an influence of the funding bodies as well. I guess if, if I'm a vitamin pill manufacturer and you, I find your research and it shows up negative.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you, there, is a, there is a lot of influence that as well. And, um, you know, from the, from, the, from the funding perspective as well, it's, it's really important to attract the funding from the, uh, from the manufacturers, from the pill producers, from the industry, from the food society, from the associations and all that, not just looking at the government funding. And government funding is absolutely fantastic. Because it allows us to recruit the people and to employ the people. I mean, every time that we receive the funding, we uh, actually we don't take that home. That gets invested. <laughs> into It would be nice, <laughs> but we don't do it. Um, but you know, we, we actually invest that into the research. We employ people to actually do the job. So uh, when you when you hear that this great researcher has received a million dollar funding, that person has not taken that money home. That has been invested into the research to employ the person, to employ the research assistants, postdocs, PhDs, honors, masters, etc. To, to find the outcome to actually answer the question that, that has been asked. Um, and from the, the, the greater manufacturers as well is that we also have to be very careful in how do we set up the contracts before we accept the money. Um, so we do have quite, quite often we get approached by um, manufacturers and by the pill companies to do the research and to perform the research. And uh, in majority of the cases, um, we always have got a statement that even the negative results will be published and that we actually don't be held just on the results of not to be controlled by what actually goes in a publication or not. So it's a, um, the companies are opening up more now to that mm. idea, um, and um, we are actually more, as, more acceptable of that approach too.
0: And you are listening to People Powered Radio. Community Radio 2X. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And our topic for today, related to hunger, is nutrition. I have two experts with me, Dr. Nina Damofsky and Mr. Nathan Dacuna from the University of Canberra. And I'd like to ask them about the fact that the nutrition advice we get seems to change all the time, which can be a little bit scary. For example, I think right now they like low-carb. Low-carb seems to be a good thing. At other times, it's been high-carb. Sometimes it's been um, low-fat, then it's been fat's okay, Um, high-fat's good. What's your opinion on that, um, Nathan?
2: Um, So generally, there's many different ways to have a healthy diet. Um, When it comes to low-carb versus low-fat, I like to cite a randomised controlled trial that was published last year. Oh, okay. Um, So this is at Stanford University. So this went for one year and they enrolled 609 people who were overweight, and they compared a healthy Mm low-carb diet to a healthy uh, low-fat diet. And uh, Both groups, they were randomized, and both groups had education from dietitians for their respective diets on how to maximize vegetable intake, uh, minimize added sugars and refined flours, and also avoid things like trans fats, fats, which we can all agree are, are quite bad for you. Um, so they asked participants to focus on whole and minimally processed foods um that were possible were cooked and prepared at home so the low-fat group they were instructed to reduce their intake of oils uh, fatty meats uh, full-fat dairy and nuts and and the low-carb group they're instructed to reduce their intake of cereals grains rice potatoes and legumes so the interesting thing with this study is that after the 12 months um, statistically both groups they lost the same amount of weight Mm -hmm. um, and there was really no difference in some of their blood biomarkers. So it really just shows that it's the whole dietary pattern of eating healthy, uh, cooking your own food, preparing fresh food, and enjoying—sorry, uh, avoiding the processed foods and added sugar. These are the real keys to the healthy diet, and not necessarily whether uh, you're low-carb or low-fat um, and have a preference in that sort of way.
0: So is there almost no one answer? Is that what you mean?
2: Exactly. So there's uh, a lot of uh, healthy dietary patterns. Um, you know, you can definitely eat a healthy vegan diet. You can eat a healthy vegetarian diet, um, low carb Mediterranean diet. Uh, dietary guidelines, of course, are, you know, are very well supported. So there really is no healthy di- one healthy diet for mm-hmm. someone to eat. And certainly across the world, we're all eating different types of foods. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, some things that we can all agree on is like maximising vegetables, um, you know, avoiding added sugars, soft drinks, and things like that. And and cooking and enjoying your food as well, like what we spoke about earlier with uh, you know the social aspect of food.
0: And on that subject, I'd like to read both of you something from the most depressing document I've ever seen. It says, I shouldn't eat takeaway foods, cakes, biscuits, sweets or chocolates. Can you guess what document that is that I found that in? No,
1: not the slightest idea.
0: <laughs> the Australian... Dietary guidelines, the current version of the Australian dietary guidelines. I thought, geez, they really kill off the fun, don't they?
1: Well, (laughs) should I listen to that? Well, put it this way: Uh, should you listen to it? They're guidelines. That's basically what they are. They're not a set of rules. And that's what people quite often forget. Even our clinicians forget that sometimes. They are literally just the guidelines to a healthy diet approach. Um, You know, trying to demonize a food is um, one of the the easiest way of getting out uh out of the problem and saying you know you shouldn't be eating cakes and sweets and all that and i'm not saying that you shouldn't be eating it eat them by all means but eat them in in in, in a rational way in a rational mm-hmm. manner that you know you don't have a large cake every single day, or you don 't have uh, you know three glasses of wine every day that 's ridiculous to even to even think about uh, implementing those type of um, aspects into the into the healthy dietary pattern. but enjoy the food that you 're having that is what people quite often forget i mean I come from the region in Mediterranean, um, and the food for us was. Um, more about the social engagement and social aspect of afford food. What the food brings, um, even even if you're on your own and you try to eat something, the food doesn't taste the way that it should taste if you're eating it in a company. Hmm. Um, so you know, the, try to eat with the people. Try to share the food. Try to share the meal. Um, it doesn't matter what it is If it's uh, you know um, stir-fried tofu, for crying mm. out loud Versus the stir-fried beef um, mm. But that concept of how are we eating it And uh, how much of that we are going to have Is going to draw onto to that idea of uh, how, do we, how did we prepare this And what is everything that goes behind the meal In order to have that so trying to avoid that uh, food groups and saying this type of food group is really bad for you, it's, um, I don't think it's the right way to approach it.
0: Hmm. So, yeah, what you're saying is um, sticking rigidly to a particular diet, unless you have, I presume, some sort of medical condition Absolutely. where it's really, really critical, of course, um, is not necessarily the way to go. You know, we have got things like the paleo diet, you know, we have got these very extreme diets that people stick to, but we're suggesting that they could still lead a healthy life even if they didn't follow something that rigidly? Absolutely. I mean, there is no need to be a militant about a diet. Mm.
1: There's literally no need to be a militant about a diet. There's so many different foods that we can actually enjoy. It doesn't matter if it's a a paleo approach or if it's a Mediterranean diet, Mediterranean diet from the food perspective approach, because Mediterranean diet is a much, much larger complex uh, issue than the food itself, or we are sticking out to the vegetarian, veganism, or carnival diet. It's all different higher perspectives. There is uh, militizing uh, and strictly restricting or excluding Mm. a certain Types of a foods unless there is a medical condition that is strictly requiring for it, it's uh, literally a waste of a time and it funds.
2: And, oh and yeah, in some cases, the the healthiest diet for someone is the healthiest diet that they can stick to. So if someone can do better by uh, someone can stick to their diet by being vegetarian or intermittent fasting or paleo, as long as you're sticking to those core principles of you know not overeating, um, avoiding junk food, maximizing your vegetable intake, then you know if you can stick to that diet in the long term maybe you have a, you know you have a, a night out you go out mm-hmm. and you have a lot of ice cream or cakes or whatever but you can get back onto it the next day so if you can stick to that diet for a longer period of time then if, if that diet's working for you then then go for it
1: And I would just add to it one more thing as well: is that we keep forgetting about the socio-economic background of the people that are having. Mm. So for us, it's all you know. For us, it's all 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 right to say we should be eating more fruits and vegetables, and you know we should be increasing the lean meats and lean cuts of the meat, and increase the more seafood and the food that is uh, generally described as healthy. But we also have to think about where is the finances coming from. Mm. So are we? Can we afford that? Uh, so is the population at that stage that we are targeting this, can they literally afford to eat healthy diet can they afford to buy the, um, the fresh fruit uh, every day and uh, have a fish uh, two or three times a day um, so that is also an idea that we really have to consider and we quite often forget that
0: mm, That's a good point when you think of the world population as opposed to just our situation of Absolutely. privilege here in Canberra
1: Absolutely yeah. you know, so yeah. it, and, and having that uh, capacity to access not only that the finance perspective but also what is the knowledge that we have got mm. in uh, whether that is uh, irregardless of a socio-economic background of how to prepare the food so are we going to use uh, chicken breast to make a soup or are we going to use uh, chicken necks, so mm-hmm. chicken breasts are you know, 12 know 15 dollars a kilo, chicken necks mm-hmm. are about 2 or 3 bucks a kilo um, but where are you going to get it, what kind of a quality of the product at the end you're going to have obviously with the chicken necks you're going to have a much better quality uh, than with the chicken breast but it's a hell of a lot cheaper, mm-hmm. it all depends on the knowledge of what type of a cut to use for what type of the food that you're preparing to
0: mhm Fantastic, thank you. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, and we're talking about nutrition. I have with me Dr. Nina Adnamovsky and Nathan Kuhner. This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on People Powered Radio, 2XX. I have two special guests with me, Dr. Nina Adnamovsky and Nathan Kuhner, who are nutritionists. And I'd like to ask them, is sugar really bad?
1: Oh, is sugar really bad? Um, Should we avoid it? Um we should, we should, we should avoid it where possible. Um, the, the, the problem with it is that uh, sugar as a commodity is actually used in the food industry in order to preserve the food products. Okay. Uh, but it's also used in order to bring the flavor and mask the flavor as well. So, for example, if you're, um, if you're using a sugar in order to develop a food product, mm. um, the high sugar content meals or products will have a longer shelf life. So therefore, we are increasing the the, the the storage capacity and we are increasing the production uh, and the reasons why we can get that and how we can actually get. The example of that would be a jam, for example. Um, we have got a fruit uh, that we usually take in a ratio of fifty-fifty, so fifty percent sugar, fifty percent uh, fruit that goes into it, with some other ingredients like protectants um, and acidity markers, acidity regulators, etc., etc. And we're producing a product that contains effectively sugar and contains a fruit, but can last for years. Um, another example would be a honey. Honey can last for centuries in some cases. Um, they're all high-sugar content foods. So there, there is a benefit of uh, sugar putting it into the food product. Um, however, the problem arises when we are actually solely dependent on the consumption of uh, meals that contain sugars in the food products. So we have to really have that clear distinction of why we're using the sugars and why we're consuming the sugars for. Um, high uh, sugar uh, content beverages like sodas, um, a variety of different fruits, juices, uh, and added Uh, sugar to the diet is also the one that is causing all sorts of uh, uh, problems uh, that we are seeing in today's society. So once you have got a high sugar food, um, your blood glucose levels will increase rapidly, and then they will drop rapidly and The probably best example for that would be uh, kids if you give them um, you know the red cordial the
0: red cordial, story. Yeah, yeah you
1: will see their hyperactivity levels just skyrocket through the roof and if you really want to make fun, you give them a double shot espresso and then see what happens not a joke but what you can actually really happen is that once you provide their sugar, you have got that immediate burst of energy that is, that your cells are utilizing and trying to burn out and you have somehow have to burn it out. If that is not being burned out in, um, in the form of a physical activity or in the form of utilizing the energy. You are building up the accumulation in the fat stores, in the fat deposits, and then the consequences lead from that, overweight, obesity, um, problems with cognition, problems with uh, physiological state, etc. So we really have to find a way of how can we regulate what is on today's market available and educate people on how much to consume Mm -hmm. that and how much of that is required to consume. One way of doing that is to implement the sugar tax. Mm -hmm. Um, Because people sometimes, uh, you really have to be uh, smacked financially in order to see that um, what you're buying is actually bad for you. Uh, I remember as a kid growing up um, back in in Croatia, um, where we used to go into the shops and we used to have... um, uh, soft drinks that were enormously priced um, because it was that tax that has been put mm-hmm. in. We, we didn't call it a sugar tax, mm-hmm. but it was exceptionally expensive to buy a bottle of Coke, for example, and, you know, no brands needed, um, but to buy a bottle of a soda, and we would only buy that if we had um, a special guest to come to the house. Otherwise, at home, we would have the water. Uh, or we would have the juices that we would be juicing up oranges, fruits, lemons, etc. Um, so all that has to be um, kind of a regulated through uh, assisting with the education. So just by slapping the people with a tax is not going to help. But slapping the people with a tax and slapping mm-hmm. the companies with a tax and providing the education to reasons why we're doing this, that is going to have a beneficial effect.
0: Hmm. Nathan, do you have any feeling about why sugar makes us feel so good?
2: Um, well, you know, sugar gives us that uh, endorphin rush that makes us feel good, gives us that burst of energy. Um, but I really think we also we just need to consider where the sugar in the diet is coming from. So yeah. are, you, are you getting it from fruits like a banana or an apple, where not only are you getting a bit of sugar, but you're getting fibre, you're getting vitamins and minerals and antioxidants. Or are you getting your sugar from some of these packaged foods that are uh, you know, boxed in with other things like fat and uh, are very nutrient-poor, so they don't have the vitamins and minerals, they don't have the fiber? So if you're eating that, those type of foods for a long period of time, then that's really going to you know, increase your risk to have problems uh, down the track um also similarly are you eating like whole grains or are you eating more refined grains like sugary cereals and things like that you know whole grains are going to digest slower and give you more of a sustained energy burst mm-hmm. and then they come uh, with more vitamins and minerals or are you having you know the refined cereal your cocoa pops and so on and that's giving you you know a quick burst of energy and then maybe an hour later you're not feeling so good and maybe you want to take a nap or you're struggling or you have some you know high sugar food for lunch and you go back to work and you sort of feel oh you know i'm not really really into this right now better go have a coffee or something like that mm-hmm. um so it really does depend you know where are you getting the sugar in your diet are you getting it packaged with you know in nutrient dense foods are you getting your vitamins and minerals with it or are you just having these really nutrient poor foods that uh, aren't really giving you your body anything uh to sustain itself on mm-hmm.
1: and also when we talk about the sugar as well is that um there is um, a, a theory from the anthropological perspective of why do we actually crave the, the sweet mm. foods and um, most, of the, most of the foods that, or most of the toxins um, that um, are found in nature are actually rather bitter. Um, so we have ah. got this tendency to avoid the bitter foods as well. And then if you take that theory into the perspective and you apply it to the current fruits and vegetables that we're having on the market. So green leafy vegetables, majority of them, they're actually bitter. Mm. Um, and from that perspective, there is, um, a genetically inherited or genetically emphasized way of, uh, super tasters. So bitter taste and the phenotypes. So the super tasters that, that can sense the bitter um to a high levels. So they have got a high number of high number of uh, bitter receptors on the tongue and, and the food for them does not taste exactly the same. Now taking that into into the perspective of that uh, we are having a quite a lot of uh, population out there that consumes the sweet foods, um about a twenty five percent of the population has got that tendency to have that they are actually a bitter bitter tasters or bitter super tasters. So they can taste the foods that is a slightly bitter to a much, much higher level. In order to mask that they add a sugar to it. Uh, So, for example, if you're drinking a black coffee, um, if you're a bitter taster, and I'm not, um, you might taste that coffee to be exceptionally bitter. So you might try to add two or three or four. In some cases, I've actually heard of people having a six to seven teaspoons of sugar Mm. in a regular cup, just in order to mask that coffee flavor. Uh, They still enjoy the flavor, they still enjoy the concept of drinking it, but it requires to be masked. So, not only that, it has been taken up from how the source is coming, but also we have to look into the perspective of what we as humans, uh, or the reasons why we're consuming the foods um, the way that it is. So, even from the fruit perspective, um, all of the fruit that is ripe, that is ready to be eaten, is actually quite sweet. Mm. So there is the, always that uh, change in, in the behavior to we want to eat the fruit that is ripe, mm-hmm. and we want to enjoy it, um, and that could be also be drawn to the reasons why we have got a tendency to consume the higher uh, high high sugar, added sugar content. So sugar per se is not mm-hmm. that bad, it's actually quite good, it's quite beneficial. We do require it to a certain extent, but we have passed that standard. We have, we have gone way beyond it in the population at the moment.
0: And we're switching now from sugar to a food that has been a bit controversial through history, and it is the humble egg. And uh, sometimes they say it's good, sometimes I say it's not good. What's your opinion, guys? Um, Are eggs good for you?
1: Um, Yes, they are. I have to put it out there straight up. Um, There is actually, um, at the moment, there is uh, no substantial evidence to support Uh, that egg consumption is uh,
0: bad for you. The argument was based on cholesterol, wasn't it? Eggs contain cholesterol cholesterol clogs up your arteries um, therefore eggs are bad.
1: That's right Um, so the the argument was based on that but um, eggs do contain cholesterol Uh, Egg yolk in particular contains high Mm -hmm. levels of cholesterol um, And the recent evidence actually shows that um, consuming the food that is uh, And this might come as a shock to some of the listeners That consuming the food that is high in cholesterol uh, Actually does not raise uh, cholesterol levels Really? Yeah So uh, what is important is that we have to distinguish between a food that contains high levels of cholesterol And a food that contains high saturated fats and trans fats so we have got uh, the cholesterol is a waxy substance. It's uh, one of the sterols. It's uh, needed by body. Um, we do require it for the production of vitamin D. We do require it for production of um, out of um, out of fats. And our body can successfully make it. So it is a very complex pathway. That if we completely avoid cholesterol out of a diet. Our body has still got a capacity to produce it, to make it, to synthesize
0: it. But you're saying cholesterol is actually a good thing in some contexts. The
1: cholesterol is a good thing. It does our body does. Need, I mean, don't get me wrong. The high cholesterol levels are really bad for you. Because that is there is ample of evidence. I'm not going to go into that mm-hmm. uh, side of a controversy mm-hmm. or even trying to allude to that the, cholesterol, the high cholesterol levels are good for you. No, no, no. High cholesterol levels have been associated with developing mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease, uh, Alzheimer's dementia, um, all sorts of uh, implications. Mm-hmm. But cholesterol. Cholesterol as a molecule, as a, as a compound, is required by the body in order to maintain the cells, in order to maintain the cellular stability, in order to maintain the cellular integrity. Um, but it's also required for a number of different metabolic pathways that are associated with uh, energy, that are associated with the metabolism, that are associated with the transport of nutrients, etc., etc. So to try to say that cholesterol is a bad for you, it's, it is in high levels. Mm. Absolutely, mm. no arguments about that. Um, but we do require it for the production of uh, different compounds as well. Mm-hmm. When we eat the food that is high in cholesterol, and the cholesterol um, has got a tendency to be excreted out um, to a certain extent. So we are literally just um, passing it out in our stool, passing it out through our feces. Um, and the, 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 the what is required is a, a, a top-up if you want to take it from, uh, from that way in very simplified forms um, however, what is the main point is that we raise the blood cholesterol if we are having a bacon with our eggs, if you are having a sausages if you are having a hash browns if you are having um, all the other foods that has got added saturated fats and trans fats to it so eggs on their own they are quite healthy even the World Health Organization, National Heart Foundation, the United States Heart Foundation has accepted that the eggs are actually quite a good food product and mm. they can be taken in. And they are, mm. they deliver beyond the cholesterol, they deliver a number of amino acids, they deliver a strength. I mean, um, mm. The, the, the first uh, TV, if I can remember, or the first movie protein supplement was back in late 70s, the Rocky movies. Mm-hmm. If you remember, he cracked six um, raw <laughs> eggs in a cup. i got a cool story about that. Um, that was when I was a young lad. <laughs> Um, that was our source of a protein supplement. So there was a, quite a lot of a guys that would be going around before we would run down to the beach, we would crack a four or six raw eggs, mix it up and drink it. Uh, and um, unfortunately in the country, there was a, quite a lot of incidents of a food poisoning during that time <laughs> as well. <laughs> so if you're going to choose your eggs and have them raw, please make sure that you know how old they are and where they come from. <laughs> Um, but um, there are kind of things that, um, the, you know, there is a lot of a negative press about it and still today there is this opinion that the eggs are actually bad for you mm. um, So eggs
0: on their own, quite good It's all the other stuff that you have with it's the, the all the other stuff that yeah. goes with it Fantastic <laughs> And speaking of breakfast foods, Nathan, coffee, is coffee good for
2: you? Uh, coffee is the best. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> if coffee was bad for you, the University of Canberra might shut down. <laughs> um, uh, but coffee—it's full of uh, nutrients, antioxidants, vitamins, and minerals. And you know, even in the US, it's uh, one of the biggest sources of antioxidants in their diet. Um, you know, it's been associated with improving cognitive performance, lower risk of type two diabetes, and even living longer. So, you know, the big UK Biobank study of you know, about nine million people. uh, They found coffee consumption was associated with reduced mortality, even in people consuming over six cups per day. Um, But many people, some people don't like drinking coffee because it it can make them feel jittery or anxious. And and this can be due to a gene called the CYP1A2 gene, uh, which is largely responsible for metabolizing about 90% of the caffeine that's in coffee. Um, So the numbers for this, they vary around the world, but approximately 12% of us uh, with a certain variation of this gene, uh, metabolize caffeine slowly so most of us uh, we met- we're intermediate metabolizers and around a quarter of us can metabolize caffeine really rapidly so these are probably the people that need coffee you know all the time but for these uh slow metabolizers the the effects can last for hours and it might help to explain why some of them uh, decide to avoid coffee um but generally i think coffee is very very healthy and you know i wouldn't be here without it <laughs>
0: Thanks, Nathan. Do we know if it matters what kind of coffee you're drinking as a, po- you know, whether you're actually got your own beans and you're grinding the beans or whether you're using instant or something? Do we know if there's a variation there well, or? There
1: is. There is a variation and even a, there is a variation in a different uh, machines that uh, people mm-hmm. quite often using. So. well, the pods
0: are very the, common the these pods,
1: days. Exactly. So the pods are very common and um, even machine itself will have a quite a, di- quite a variation in how much of uh, caffeine has been extracted out mm-hmm. of a pod. So one machine itself might deliver you some times, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm pulling the numbers off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Like a, maybe a, a 10 milligrams of coffee compared to um, next time that you make it, it might be 150. So there is a quite large variation from the same machine that you are getting. Um, coffee beans themselves, they are more associated with the different types of, of flavors and the ways that you are uh, the, the ways that you are roasting them or how mm-hmm. they have been processed, um, rather than having um, uh, a great variation in uh, caffeine amounts that are being delivered. So. A lot of the talk has been gone back into it. What is the optimal uh, temperature of extraction? How much is quantity of water is needed? Uh, where do you get the strength of the coffee? Usually they refer to the the, the the flavor strength rather than a caffeine content of the coffee itself. So there's a lot of uh, aspects that goes from it. So it's really a, really an art to have a mm. proper and decent cup of coffee.
0: As regards caffeine... And caffeine levels. Mm-hmm. I presume what up to a certain amount of caffeine that's good, and then if you have too much, that's not so good. Would that be true? Or? Y-
1: yeah, you can have, you can, you can have those kind of aspects. I mean, for example, I usually have anything from six to twelve cups of coffee a day. Wow! So I'm, I can just drink coffee, and um, I can go to bed without having any uh, jitters, or having any heart palpitations, or having any any problems associated with it. <laughs> Um, but if a <laughs> coffee if, if, seller's dream. So, <laughs> but if but if I suggest that to my wife, for example, she mm. will explode after a second cup. Uh, <laughs> so literally, she is not one of the good people that can actually metabolize a caffeine in so much extent. But to me, it was um, I don't know if that is a genetic uh, aspect mm. of it or it's just the conditioning that I have been exposed to through running in the kitchen or writing the papers or just having a coffee there that is always with me. So they are kind of the things that really also have to be taken into consideration of what is good and what is. Not,
0: mm.
2: okay. and I know. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I know for me, it's the. It could be the genes because I've been uh, done my genetic testing. You know, uh-huh. spit in a little tube and send it off in the mail, and I'm one of those rapid metabolizers. And oh,
0: okay. yeah,
2: I can have uh, you know coffee a couple of hours before bed and still uh, go straight Absolutely to sleep. <laughs> right. it,
0: it's a gift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to mention that um, I heard a little secret about um, you, Neenad, and that is that um, you uh, did some research on green tea. Oh, that was positive, but you don't drink it.
1: Uh, yes, you're drinking coffee instead. Your <laughs> twenty cups. Coffee.
0: Oh, my twenty <laughs> cups of coffee. A day. But is green tea good?
1: Yeah, the green tea is. It's a really interesting area because the green tea is. It 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 actually is is a quite good uh, a beverage to have um, because a high consumption of a green tea have been associated with uh, reduction in cardiovascular disease risk factors. Have mm-hmm. been associated with improvements in cognitive functioning, memory, reduction of stress. Um, um, uh, improvements in uh, metabolizing um, or burning out of fat faster in some cases and even athletic improvements as well mm-hmm. um, if you have a look from the perspective from the studies that are coming out from the Asian countries about the consumption of a green tea in particular uh, Japan and uh, China there is um, quite a lower incidence of uh, CVD risk factors and that's where we are dragging most of the information out and how to consume it the problem with the green tea starts arising when we move into the green tea supplement Mm. when we are having enormous amounts of the beneficial compounds being concentrated mm. and lyophilized or spray-dried, freeze-dried uh, into the into the capsule forms. And we are thinking always that having more is a better for you, which is uh, mm. completely incorrect.
0: Fantastic. We'll have to um, go at this stage. Thank you very much, gentlemen, Dr. Nina Adnamovsky and Nathan de Kuna, University of Canberra, Fuzzy Logic Science Show and Nutrition Experts.